0: Our uh, passage this morning is from Mark chapter 2, and the theme or the topic that we're going to talk about is Jesus and sickness. Uh, This is a topic that is uh, touchy. Uh, It's a topic actually that's um, in many ways incredible and encouraging. And it's a topic for me that's personal. Um, I said this, I think, the time or time before last when I preached in this church, but uh, I have an incurable autoimmune disease called lupus. You may be familiar with it. Um, And so my own personal experience with having prayed for healing, having had others pray for healing over me, and yet I have not, to this point, been healed of my disease my symptoms, uh, you, you may not look at me and think I'm a sick person. If you do think you look at me and think I'm a sick person, please don't tell me that. <laughs> but there's, I'm thankful it's not worse than it is. It could become worse than I can imagine. And the question that looms and lies in the middle of all of that, because I know there's so many in this room who have either been sick, been close to the door of death, Suffered with someone whom they love that has been sick or has been um, taken because of sickness. It's common, and there's very few men who will make it through this life without encountering it. And so, in those those moments of weakness, there's great hope. There's something that Jesus says and does about sickness. There's ways that He interacts with it. There's things that He does in response to it that should give us incredible hope. For those who are in Christ, not even sickness is worth becoming despondent over. And so this single narrative, it's a little bit dangerous to take a large topic like that and to take a singular experience and then make general comments about it. Just like it would be silly for me to talk about my personal experience of suffering with sickness and then make general comments about all of your general sufferings with sickness. It would almost feel insensitive to do so. What I want to do this morning is to tackle this narrative. Okay, and here's why. Every single man in this room suffers from sickness of the soul. Not all of you have a sick body, but all of you in here and everyone outside of here suffers from a disease and a sickness that only God can heal. There is no other who can do it. And so I'm giving you the point before the the story that God has made a way in Jesus Christ to comprehensively heal those who are in him from every ailment of body and soul. But the ultimate thing that every single one of you need and every single person who's outside of here is the power of God's healing and forgiveness. And before I even dive in, let me say this. In case that seems trite or, or too, uh, too pastoral, For those of you who have been sick, there's something that makes you reflective in those moments about the weightier things of life. In other words, there's something about a physical ailment that makes you feel weak enough to actually start thinking about the things that matter most. That's why you have deathbed conversions. They're not insincere. They're moments where the sickness of the body creates a pathway for the liberation of the soul. Everyone always complains about the thief on the cross getting a chance in the last minute. I think it shouts to the glory and grace of God that he would use his suffering to rescue him. And if you are on this earth and have a forgiven soul and a sick body, you really have all you're ever going to need. But if you live on this earth and you have a healed body and a sick soul... You're not actually healed. And so this passage is where we see Jesus interacting with that reality. And I think you'll see it. But there's four strange things that happen. I want to make comments about each four. And uh, in the end, I want to circle back around to, to tell you a final thing, a final comforting word for those of you who, like me, might be sick and in need of healing, praying for healing, and yet aren't yet healed. So let's look at the passage, Mark 2. I'm going to kind of walk through it as a commentary rather than read the, the whole thing. And when he, that is Jesus, returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home and many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. Can you imagine coming home to that? You've been out on a business trip and you get home and your house is so crowded that you can't even get in. And it says, Jesus was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. Okay, strange thing number one the removal of the roof so that one of potentially many sick people could be let down and hopefully healed. We don't know at this point what's going to happen. We just know it's strange that they removed the roof to get him in there. Okay? What that speaks to is the ministry in the life of Jesus. His popularity is astounding. But for what? Well, the assumption you make from this because you know the story is that it's healing, and it certainly was. But the ministry for which he was best known was not simply a ministry of healing, it was also a ministry of preaching. If you go back to Mark 1, and I'm just going to read you a couple things, Mark's gospel is so fast, and I love it because God has to hit me in the face to slow me down sometimes. But as Mark 1 is unfolding, um, it says this, Uh, Jesus begins his ministry, and after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is here. Repent and believe in the gospel, the power of the spoken word. Okay. Shortly after that, he heals a man with an unclean spirit. He goes into Capernaum, where this story takes place, He goes in on the Sabbath. He goes into the synagogue. And there was a man there with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, What do you have to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? A recognition of his power. And Jesus rebukes the man and says, Be silent and come out of him. And he's healed. A ministry of the power of the healing word of God through the wonder of the touch of the power of the healing of God. Okay, and then after that, it says, Jesus heals many. He immediately leaves the synagogue and he enters the house of Simon and Andrew and Simon's mother-in-law was ill with fever. And he heals her. And then immediately after that, Simon and those who were with him searched for him because he had gone away to pray. And listen to this. They found him and they said, everyone is looking for you. Well, that's why his house was so crowded. Everyone is looking for you. And Jesus responds with this, Let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. Shortly after this, he heals a leper. Okay, Why do I say that? It's not just the ministry of the wonder, of the miracle of healing that people were so astounded by. Even before that, It was the ministry of the power of his spoken word. And so there's this combination of astonishment around Jesus that it's his spoken word and his ability to do this wondrous healing that's drawing crowds and crowds of people so much that he can't even get into his house. Preaching and healing, word and wonder. Jesus has this significant power. To heal, And what I want to say this morning briefly is God still heals. This is important to understand and believe. The same Christ who lived then now dwells in those who believe in Him. The same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead now dwells in you. And I could speak from my own personal experience as I've witnessed the healing of God in the lives of of other people. Um, My sister being one of them. Um, And you can ask me later if you want to know more about that. But apart from my personal experience, Scripture itself attests to the reality that God heals. And our very own denomination, which I'll show you, affirms the reality of God's healing in our doctrinal commitments. And we even practice it in our own church. It's an important regular ministry of the church, the ministry of healing. Uh, James 5 says this, Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another, pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. And then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain and the earth bore its fruit. What do I read That passage to you. Well, the the practice is clear. There's a a regular practice of elder-led prayer for healing. But it's not simply the elders. There's also the others. Okay? And 2 Corinthians 12, 8 and 9 says that amongst the diversity of gifts that have been given, one of those is the prayer of faith that leads to healing. Meaning, it's not just the elders in the church that God will empower and use for the sake of healing. Healing. And in case we doubt that, I'm thankful he mentions Elijah. Isn't that kind of a strange thing to end with? It's not really too strange. That argument negates one of my primary objections that arises within me. Well, it may have worked for him back then, but he was a special thing. There was a lot of crazy stuff that happened with Elijah. Well, James, who's not prone to hyper-emotionalism, If you've read the book of James, it reads like Proverbs. It can feel like a dry punch in the face at times. And he says, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. Okay, And what he's trying to say is, on the contrary, Elijah was just like you and me in many ways. And so when you pray in faith for the same types of things that he did, you might just see the healing take place. You might not. Because ultimately the healing comes from the Lord, but it's exercised through the prayers of his people. Uh, Our General Assembly has a pastoral letter from 30 to 40 years ago, but I thought it was interesting uh, to read this to you. In the section specifically addressing present-day miracles, it says this, Scripture also uses the term miracle or wonder to describe the acts of God in all areas of creation and providence. The power of God in response to believing prayer to work wonders and to heal the sick cannot be limited. Such wonders certainly do continue to this day and are all for the glory of God and not man. Pretty spectacular, isn't it? To work wonders and to heal the sick cannot be limited. So why am I starting here? I'm starting here because we have to take healing seriously. We have to take it seriously. It's attested to in the Word of God, and it's practiced by the church of God, and it's empowered to the elders and the people of God to do so. In our very own church, we practice this the third Monday night of every month. Anyone who is in sick and in need of healing may come before our elders, and we will anoint them with oil, and we will pray for their bodies. We will pray for their souls. We will pray for any emotional or psychological healing. We will pray for them to be set free. I think in our day and age, we've lost our need for, our faith in, our practice of healing. And I think we need to take it more seriously because we need to take sickness seriously it's awful it's a curse it's the fruit of evil and as I mentioned I know many in here have suffered from it you or a loved one that you know and I'm reminded every week as a pastor of the desperate need of healing in the lives of people it is a daily if not a weekly if not daily occurrence in the ministry of the church And so, when I read about Jesus and I see that people are astonished at his word and at his wonder, and that they are gathered around, and there are these people who have brought their friend who is a paralytic, and they have ushered him in to the point that they'll remove the roof to drop him in. There's a beckoning in them and a hope in them that if they can just get him to Jesus, then maybe he'll be healed. what we find with Jesus and his healings is often all it takes is his spoken word. But he's so gracious that he will reach out and he will touch those who are untouchable. He'll love them that way. And he'll set them free. And so all these people are gathered because they have heard his spoken word and the power of it. And they have seen the wonder of his healing miracles. And it's strange. Open the thatch and let him in. And then it says, when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. The second strange thing is Jesus sees their faith. Whose faith? Well, it's not referring to the paralytic. It's referring to the friends. Commentators argue over this because it it seems strange that Jesus would apply Healing to a man while looking at the faith of someone else. And there's been a lot of harm done throughout Christian history to tell people who are sick that if you only had faith to be healed, you would be healed. When we see this example, that it's not actually the paralytic's faith that Jesus is recognizing before He's going to perform the miracle. It's the faith of the friend's. Who would on their shoulders carry him for miles just to have him healed? And then we see in James 5, the same thing's true. It's the prayer of the faith of the elders. The faith of the sick person is that they're willing to avail themselves to help. The prayer of faith comes from the body of faith who is crying out on behalf of the sick person. And so though that's strange, we see this this interplay where Jesus is um, commending the fact that there would be some who would believe in such a way just to get him to Jesus that he might be healed. Only he could heal them. We've got to get him to Jesus. I, I wonder if you're here and you're sick. And if you're keeping yourself from being availed to the help of the prayers of God's people. I know that temptation. And Brother, I would quietly tell you, it's, it's got some kind of roots in a source of pride. I know you wish to be healed, and I would encourage you to avail yourself to the help of the people of God. One simple way you could do that is come on a third Monday night. Let us pray over you. Make that your effort of faith. And then let the faith, when yours might be failing, of others who believe, pray over you to be healed. And so Jesus sees their faith. That's the second strange thing. The third one is this. It's what he says to the paralytic. And this actually is the crux of the passage. Because what we see here is now Jesus isn't just talking about the man's body. He starts talking about the man's soul. Okay? When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, the first words to the sick man, your sins are forgiven. That sounds so insensitive. We've carried this man for miles. His legs don't work. He's not walking. He's got an obvious problem, Jesus. And you say his sins are forgiven? That seems so incredibly Insensitive. Brent, I know you want healing from your lupus. I know you're scared about what the future might be, not just for yourself, but your family. And I want you to know your sins are forgiven. I don't think he's speaking with an arrogance trying to prove a preacher's point through the life of someone who's suffering. Because in every instance where we see Jesus healing, there is incredible compassion. So much so that he'll sometimes heal people who don't even know that they need it. You remember the man at the pool of Bethesda? Jesus says, do you want to be healed? And he starts talking about how he can't get to the water. Jesus heals him anyways. Son, your sins are forgiven. He needs his legs back. He needs to walk. He needs physical healing. His body is broken. His friends and family obviously long for him to be healed. It's why he made this trek. And he says your sins are forgiven. Why? Because no matter how broken, sick, diseased, or decaying our bodies might be, our greatest need will always be forgiveness. Because our greatest sickness is, is always going to be the sickness of our soul. It is the disease that every man and woman suffers from, and so many don't know it. The story that follows this is a story where Jesus calls a tax collector to follow him. And then the story that follows that in verses 15 to 17 goes like this. He reclined at table in his house, and many tax collectors and sinners were gathered there. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw it, that he was eating with them, said, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus is trying to give them a second chance. To see the sickness that he came primarily, not only, but primarily to heal. And he says to them, those who are well have no need of a physician. You think you're well. You feel no need. But I came not to call the righteous. I came to call sinners. When you are sick in your body, you are aware of it. It becomes overwhelming. It's the first thing you pray because it's the first thing you feel. But what Jesus is saying is there's a sickness that's more prevalent, that's more present, and only I can heal it. And it's the sickness of your soul. What every man needs more than anything else is the power of God to heal your soul. It's the miracle of forgiveness. It is sin that has paralyzed this man. Not necessarily his own, but the sin of living in a world that's full of death and decay. And every sickness is a result of sin. Every day of disease and sickness is a reminder there's a a big, big problem. And someone else than me is going to have to solve it. And so this paralyzed man, though sick, actually needs two kinds of healing. And Jesus introduces it this way. Not to be insensitive, but in hypersensitivity to know what this man truly, really needs. Only he can cure both body and soul. And then lastly and finally, there's a fourth strange thing. Jesus says, son, your sins are forgiven. And it says, now some of the scribes were sitting there, perhaps the ones from the future story I just read. And they began to question in their hearts and say, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And you know what? They're right. God may directly or indirectly heal someone physically. He may use miracles or he may use medicine. But when it comes to the healing of sins, no man, can do it. Only God alone can forgive sins. So they're right. But they don't say it out loud, they question it in their hearts. And this shows something about Jesus, because it says immediately, perceiving in his spirit that they question this within themselves, he said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven? Or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He turns to the paralytic and says, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And the man rose immediately, picked up his bed, and went out before them all. And they were amazed and glorified God, saying, We have never seen anything like this before. Only God can forgive sins. And so when Jesus says this, they know no man can provide that kind of healing. Only a God-man could. Okay? And while God can heal physical sickness however he wishes, the only way, the only way, and listen, brothers, the only way you can be forgiven of the sickness of your sins is if God himself intervenes. Okay, That's what provides ultimate healing. It's the harder one to do. Humanly speaking, we would hear him and go, it's much easier to tell him his sins are forgiven than to make this paralytic rise up and walk. But Jesus, knowing that actually the more difficult miracle to achieve is the forgiveness of sins, says, I'll prove my authority to do that by making this man walk. I will use the physical healing to glorify and magnify the fact that I am the God-man and I can forgive sins. The harder miracle is forgiveness. And how do I ultimately know that? Jesus, with a spoken word, could exact healing for someone. But for him to forgive sins, he's going to have to die. It's the harder miracle. a mere spoken word of power isn't going to do. To forgive sins, he's going to have to take on sin. And in so doing, there's going to be a redemption that's achieved that is primarily and first of the sickness of the soul, but it will encompass comprehensively the entire body. And what was sown in corruption will receive incorruption. What was sown in dishonor will receive honor. These are the words of Paul in another place. What was sown perishable will now become imperishable. And that's what we mean by eternal life. It's the fullness of life known through the forgiveness of sins, which achieves for those in Christ the complete redemption of their bodies. Amen? And what that means practically, brothers, is this. You, in Christ Jesus, are already healed. Spiritually, it is immediately effective. Physically, eventually, and sometimes immediately, like we see in the passage today. But ultimately, when I look at my lupus, it's not a matter of whether or not I am Healed. Jesus Christ, when He died on the cross and rose from the grave, conquered the decay and the death. And He has immediately applied by His Spirit His forgiveness to my life. I'm already free. And He will, this side of heaven or the next, apply the full healing that comes with it. Now might you understand why this strange book tells us such strange things like to rejoice in suffering. You can only do it if you know, without a doubt, that you're already healed. See, Everett Koop, some of you might be familiar with who that is. He's a Surgeon General of the United States. He was also a Presbyterian. Okay, three people in here care about that. That's great. (laughs) I want to read something in closing that he said. Now, keep in mind, this this man, uh, he's probably, at least for me, the only (laughs) Surgeon General I'm familiar with. Kind of became a household name. Okay. Uh, He performed over 50,000 operations in his 40 years as a surgeon. He saw all kinds of suffering, sick, diseased, and dying people, particularly children, the most vulnerable. And he performed, let's see, that's right, over 50,000 operations in his 40 years as a surgeon, especially on those with disabilities, like a paralyzed man. This is what he had to say. Affliction is part of the Christian's life just as much as the non-believers, sometimes even more so. The proper response of Christians to affliction is not to demand healing, but rather to witness to the world that through the grace of God, a Christian is able to accept affliction, trusting in the sovereignty, grace, and mercy of God in time, knowing that all of these things will be removed by eternity." If miracles were commonplace, they would cease to be miracles. And I repeat what I said earlier. It is always God who does the healing, but He does not regularly do so in a miraculous way. He heals providentially. God can be and should be glorified when healing of illness takes place. But He should also be glorified when healing does not seem to take place. And even when death ensues in spite of the pain and the grief it may cause. I don't say this flippantly. I lost my own son to a rock climbing accident. And I have learned how how essential the doctrine of God's sovereignty is in such circumstances. God was greatly glorified by that tragedy in ways that I could have never predicted at the time. What a Savior we have in Jesus. That we come to him. With sickness of soul, oftentimes when we sense sickness of body and we think ultimately what we need is our broken bones to be mended. And he doesn't ignore it, but he looks through it into our soul and says, there's something even greater that you need. And as I achieve that for you, you're actually in the end going to get exactly what you're praying for. It's the redemption of our bodies, the restoration of our souls, and it's only possible in Jesus Christ. Let me pray. Father, thank you for these promises. I think we often think of what you've done for us in Jesus, and we either tend to only think spiritually about it, or we tend to only wonder physically about it. And the truth is, The God-man has made a way to rescue us and to redeem us, body and soul. So we have reason to hope above and beyond anyone else. Because like Paul said, though we may pray three times for you to remove something from us, in the end your grace is sufficient, your power is made perfect in our weakness, and we testify to the world that we are a healed person that though we are sick, yet will we rejoice. Father, I just want to pray comfort for those who are suffering right now. Perhaps who have recently lost someone. Heal them too. No, not from sickness, but from grief. From discouragement. Remind them of the hope of the gospel. Though our outward body is wasting away, our inner man is being renewed day by day. And grant them the grace to hold on, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.